You're listening to Members of the Jury, the show that takes you straight into the trenches of justice, where the passion, players, and consequences are real. Each episode, we examine current events happening in the system. From the battles in courtrooms to the streets demanding reform, we bring those stories here to you, the members of the jury, because we aren't afraid to take it to the box. All right, all right. Remain seated and come to order. Welcome back, members of the jury, to another amazing edition of Freedom Friday as we break down another trial victory. On today's episode, we are going to be joined by one of the smartest public defenders that I know. And this tale is truly amazing because in a time where the world has and was placed on pause, those who were charged with crimes have had to put their proceedings on hold. Barely any litigation has been able to take place. But this attorney and our guest today still found a way to take it to the box. You see, oftentimes public defenders hear the notion of, quote unquote, I'm going to get a real lawyer. And that always baffles me and my colleagues because we are some of the most familiarized people with the courts, the laws, and the changes. And that really benefits us. Our, our weakest component is just obviously our caseload and can't necessarily uh, interact with our clients as much as we want to. But as our skill set, as it relates to the law and advocacy, it is top notch. And this lawyer and this Freedom Fighter demonstrated that at a time where so little justice was being administered. So we're so happy to have her. Uh, we're really excited to get into the inter- interview. And so, Dom, please introduce yourself to the members of the jury. Thanks, Lucas. I feel uh, I feel as stressed as I would if I was starting an actual trial doing this. Uh, so my name's Dom, and like a couple of your guests before, I am not just a defense attorney, but a public defender. And I'm here today to tell you about one of my greatest victories so far as a public defender. Well, we're really excited to get into it. I do want to give everyone just a little bit of background. Uh, obviously, in a lot of courthouses and jurisdictions throughout the country since March of 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic shut things down. And and rightfully so, uh, we understood that there was a a global pandemic that was taking the lives of hundreds of thousands of people, and and that there was a need to put the health and safety of everyone above certain other aspects of life. But over the months and times and just passing of the virus and progression of things, it seemed that people were making advances and finding alternatives and ways to continue all around us, except for in the courthouse. Extension after extension after extension continued to be granted that denied individuals the ability to go to the courthouse, to have their cases litigated, and ultimately exercise their right to go to trial, whether they were in custody or out of custody. And so, Dom, why don't you give us a little bit of background as to, you know, how this fight started, what was the status of your client as it related to in or out of custody, and how were you able to navigate through such a a rough starting point? Yeah, so uh, this case actually originated pre-COVID. It was assigned to me in December of 2019, having an offense date from December of 2019. And so when I first got the case, I wasn't aware that I was going to run into any of these challenges. The only thing I knew is that I had a client who, from the day I met him, was very adamant that he wanted to have a trial on the case 
and that there really wasn't any need for me to make any plan for him except to have a jury trial as fast as possible. Um, and so I said, okay, that's our plan. And early on in the case, there was one, one point where I was in trial on another matter. And unfortunately, because of that, I had to ask the court to give me a little more time on this client's case. And he was very upset with me for it. And it turns out that that was actually a lot worse than I thought it was going to be. Because then after that continuance in, in January of 2020, uh, the court got shut down. And my client was in jail. He was facing uh, very serious charges. And he had a very serious record um, that made it where this case uh, he was facing life. And because he was facing life, um, I thought, well, now here's this pandemic. Um, everything you just talked about is going on. And I think, unfortunately, this client is probably going to have to ride this one out in a jail cell. I don't think he's going to be one of these people who got the benefit, if you can call it that, the benefit of being allowed to be out of custody during this time. Um, and so that that created a lot of issues for us at the beginning because he was really disappointed that I'd asked for that continuance. And I was too, because now we were in this situation where I thought he probably was going to be in jail maybe for a long time. You know, none of us knew um, in March of last year exactly how long that was going to be. Um, it turned out to be an extraordinary amount of time. And I don't know, we talked a little bit before we recorded about what was going on with my client. I don't know if you want to talk about that now. Yeah, no, I wanted to just unpack a little bit of, about what you said. You know, one of the things that definitely grabbed my attention um, and what you were just talking about is how you were saying that this was a lifetime case. So I think we should start there, maybe explain to the members of the jury what exactly your client was facing and how legally it was, uh, the maximum consequence was a potential life sentence. Yeah, so for this client, um, and this was very early in my practice as a felony attorney when I received this case, you know, and I got it and I looked at, you know, the charging document and the charging document showed that my client was charged uh, with a robbery, which is a strike offense. And then he was also charged with felony domestic battery, uh, which is not a strike. Um, and so it also alleged all of his prior convictions and it had on the complaint that I received that he had been previously convicted of seven strikes. Um, which if anybody's familiar with the court system, like, or with baseball, you know, that seven is way too many strikes, <laughs> three is usually the limit. Um, and so I was in a situation where I definitely had to go to some colleagues with more experience than me and say, Hey, I just want to make sure I'm reading this right. This complaint says that my client's been convicted of seven strikes. That means he's now facing his eighth strike. Like, what does that mean to you? And my very, very intelligent colleagues who've been doing this a lot longer than me said, you know, you, you read it right. He's got seven strike priors. This is his eighth. Um, and based on the three strikes law in California, that means that he is eligible for a life sentence. His sentence, his potential sentence was actually uh, 35 to life. Wow. And so when you first got the assigned the case, as you indicated, your client was in custody and, and that would remain the fact. And you had talked about another case that ultimately made you have to file that continuance. But on this case, while your client was in custody, is that when you conducted the prelim as well? Yes. So while my client was in jail, I had to continue it because of a trial. It finished relatively quickly and it resulted in probably about a three-week delay in this case. Um, but we were able to do the preliminary examination while the client was in custody. And 
I guess I should say at this point that when we did the preliminary examination, my client didn't think the victim was going to make it to court, that he felt like she had been making plans to leave town before this happened and that she had probably followed through on those plans. And so I was wondering the same, you know, is she going to show up? And, you know, I actually just had the benefit of listening to your episode that you released today about uh, domestic violence cases, about another domestic violence case. And I thought, oh, this is so timely because I had the exact same thought about my case which is, I kind of wanted her to be there. I didn't think that the story that she was telling was exactly what happened. And I really wanted her to be present. And I made, you know, all the efforts I could to find her. I wrote her on Facebook. I I texted her on the numbers I had. And I I tried to get in touch with her and I just couldn't. So we did that prelim uh, with just an officer being present. And in California, the law says that that's fine for an officer to come in and do a prelim where they testify and talk about what they heard from the victim, which would typically be considered hearsay in a trial. Um, But in a preliminary examination, they're allowed to do it. And so they did. So they do the prelim without the victim. Was there any conversation um, or controversy as to how much effort the people may have put in into trying to find the victim or to even get her there? So I definitely had made some efforts before the prelim which were mainly because I needed to know if I had to transcribe like all all of this body-worn footage that I had. And I know that I communicated with the prosecutor at the beginning of the case. And because of what my client had told me about her planning to move out of state and just said, hey, do you know if that's true? Do you know where she is? And I'm not sure if they directly told me um, when we did this prelim before the pandemic whether or not they could find her, but it was definitely implied that they didn't think she was going to be a very easy witness for them to find. Okay. So they do the prelim without the victim. The I'm assuming that uh, Klein is bound over on both counts and that new dates are then set. And then that is where we come back to the point of the story where his newly set dates conflicted with a trial that you were already in. Right. Exactly. Okay. And so then that took us into the COVID period. And at that time, is it my understanding that your client, he was still in custody, correct? Yes. My client was in jail and I was doing with him the same thing that I was doing with nearly everybody I represented in late March and early April of last year, which is that I was meeting with them regularly because they were in jail and they had a lack of access to information and they really didn't know what was going on with court or with the world. And I was basically telling them, hey, you know, I just want to let you know that I haven't forgotten about you. I'm thinking about you. I'm worried about you. But it's it relates to my representation of you, I have absolutely no idea what's going on. I just don't know. Um, And I think most of us had the same experience, which is that we were just telling our clients like very unconfidently, I don't know what's going to happen next. And some of them understood. And some of them, like my client in this case said, I don't accept that. I, I don't think that that's the way this should work. It's my constitutional right to have a trial. And you're taking that away from me. And I don't think that's fair. Yeah, that's, he's totally right. And I, and you're totally right. I mean, there was totally a period where for months, we just would not know what was going on and wouldn't even get potential answers. You know, when we first got sent home, it, I think everybody was given the notion of like, you know, we'll be back in like two weeks. And then when that two weeks came and went, 
from that very moment, it was, we'll let you know more when we get it. And it almost went from really like a day-to-day progress report to find out what was happening um, almost for about, you know, six months. And so when there was a certain period of time, though, where we were able to start getting some virtual court hearings going and being able to get some things addressed, did there come a point in time where, you know, things got so critical and you had the ability to address the status of your custody where, you know, that opportunity arose? Yeah. So um, for a lot of my clients, that time came quickly because the court changed a lot of their rules, changed a lot of the reasons that they would or wouldn't leave someone in custody. And a lot of my clients, I would say the majority of them were placed on lists marked as special people who weren't dangerous enough to remain in custody given the pandemic and let go. This client, because of his current charges and his criminal history, was not one of those people. So I went to meet with him and said, you know, hey, a lot of people have gotten lucky. They're leaving. Um, You're not on these lists. And he said, well, you know, I do have, um, I I don't want to really go into like what his medical condition was, but he told me that he had a medical condition that I was sure was a reason that he should be let out of custody. And so I did a little personal research and I was actually able to find a doctor who worked for the Boston Medical Center, which was just kind of luck that I was able to find this person who worked on the opposite coast, specialized in the condition my client had. And I didn't know anything about her. I found her email online and I fired off an email that said, hey, my client has this disorder that you specialize in. Um, he's currently in jail. He's facing some pretty serious charges and I'm trying to get him out of jail. Will you help me? And I was really, really fortunate. So was my client um, that this person didn't care that Mr. Uh, I'll call him Mr. T didn't care that he was charged with something serious. Uh, didn't really care anything except that she was hearing that a client who had a condition that she specialized in had not been convicted of anything was pre-trial and was being held in custody during a worldwide pandemic, when very basic things that people were being asked to do in March and April of last year were literally impossible in the jail. You can't social distance in a, in a jail setting. You can't avoid uh, you know, close contacts. Things that we take for granted. In jail, people trade things like food and supplies all the time. It's part of the way that they barter and do business. And so to say even simple things like don't don't drink off each other's cup or share food. Well, in the jail, that's something that you do as a bartering system. And so it just wasn't realistic. I was also hearing from the people who I was talking to that were still in custody, that they were being told that there weren't even cleaning supplies available anymore and that they should be wiping things down with wet rags. So I was concerned, the doctor was concerned, and she said, I'm happy to help you. I'm not going to charge you or your office any money to do this. She reviewed his medical history. She confirmed that he had the disorder. And she wrote a letter directly to the court saying that it was her professional opinion. Um, and it was a well-sourced letter. She, she did cite to authority saying that the client should be released because of his condition. And lucky for us, um, the court agreed. They read that letter. And I think they were put in, frankly, probably a very uncomfortable position where they had to say, you know, I'm, I have this letter from a professional specializes in exactly what client has. And I think I have to let him out. And the judge did the right thing and sent my client home. You know, obviously there were conditions of his release. He wasn't supposed to talk to the victim. He could be searched without a warrant or probable cause. He was supposed to stay at home and stay out of trouble. Um, But the court let him go. And it was 
fortunate in some ways that they did that because it secured his like physical safety. It was unfortunate in others because it kind of put him in the back of the line for this trial that he'd been asking for so long. That was exactly where I was thinking, like how beneficial on one end, but detrimental on, on another. You know, you're totally right that one of the biggest struggles I think that happened right away with the pandemic was how are you going to take care of the in custodies? Because, you know, once it hits the jails, it was likely to run rampant. And then the potential of that spreading to, you know, the sheriffs or court staff or lawyers and all of that became such a big hurdle. And so that's so such a fascinating story that you were able to get into connection with a doctor who was willing to, you know, advocate for, you know, the most vulnerable, uh, not only the most vulnerable, but the most vulnerable in the most vulnerable position, because being sanitary and like sanitation is not really top priority uh, in the jails. You know, it, it's almost that stuff is like offered in the commissary. It's not necessarily given to all the prisoners or inmates. And so not even everyone has equal access to soap or hand sanitizer or just other basic, you know, needs. And so that's amazing that he was able to get out. But as we were talking about, because he was able to get out, he now be, has an out of custody status, which our jurisdiction had generated a, a, pri a priority list, which, you know, targeted in custody felonies first, and then put anybody out of custody on the back. And so ultimately, how did getting him released uh, out of custody of affect his now newly set trial dates? So because he was released from custody, this priority list that you talked about, one of the criteria that the court had been using all along for prioritizing who would or would not get a trial, given the pandemic, was that the person did have to be in custody in order for them to be given priority. And I guess we should note here that priority back then and even now um, doesn't mean that you get to go later. It means we let every custody person go before we even discuss the potential of doing an out-of-custody client's trial. So I think it's really important for people to know right now that we do have these priority lists and it's only people who are in jail. And we are still some 15 months later telling our out-of-custody clients the same things that we were telling them a year ago, which is that we really don't know when they're going to become the court's quote priority um, because right now they're they're operating a single courtroom, at least in our courthouse, to do trials from. So no time soon. I, I'm advising people that they should expect it's still going to be another six six months to a year before an out of custody case goes. Yeah, I know that's definitely a, a battle that us and and several other counties and jurisdictions are are still facing as you know we continue to you know battle through COVID. But I know. In our jurisdiction, um, a lot of us on the front lines, you know, persevered, got the vaccination, did what it was, did what we felt like it was necessary to do for the best interest of our clients to get back into the courthouse and to get things operational. And so hopefully that happens. But in the meantime, you were still able to demand justice for your client, ultimately exercise the speedy rights he had in the best way that you could. And so let's get to the next hearing. We know that we had the prelim and that he got released. And, you know, so now we're, I think, possibly uh, late September of, of 2020. It was the next time that we had any kind of hearing on this case. And so why don't you bring our members of the jury up to speed as to that hearing? 
Yeah. So after the preliminary examination, everything closed down. My client gets out of custody. I spend the summer um, and part of the fall telling him, I don't really know when we're going to have court. Um, And we finally got to this point where out of custody clients had hearings scheduled. Now they weren't trials. um, They were just dates where we were going to meet with everyone and say kind of what we thought should happen next, given the pandemic. In September of 2020, um, my client told me, you shouldn't do anything besides show up on that day and let the judge know that we're ready to start our trial. Um, And I had been prepared for the trial. I honestly had been ready to go since the preliminary examination, just because of how much time I had to spend uh, thinking about what would happen if the victim wasn't present, I was able to be ready. And so I told him, great, that's what we'll do. And in September, uh, we appeared before the judge from out of custody in a virtual hearing. And I told the judge that we were ready to proceed, that my client was demanding, in fact, that he had a constitutional right to a speedy trial and that we were ready to start. And the district attorney's office told the judge that they were also ready to proceed um, and that they understood that because of the worldwide pandemic and the rulings that our specific court was kind of following at the time, that even though I said I was ready and they said they were ready, that the trial wasn't going to start on that date. And the court then pulled out a script that they used on hundreds, maybe even thousands of cases around that time that said, you know, given the worldwide pandemic, the lack of available courtrooms and the extensions that have been granted to our office, um, this trial has continued and that was it. And I had the same conversation that I'd been having with my client for quite some time, which is that I believed in his constitutional right to speedy trial. Um, and I wanted to do this trial as soon as possible because it was his position that what the court was doing was giving the prosecutor's office more time to build a stronger case against him, which is at least one of the reasons that you're supposed to have a speedy trial is so that the government can't take as long as they want um, to kind of make the shoe fit. And so my client was upset and I was upset and we had our trial set for February. And a really big thing, ha- it sounds like it happened right there, even though it was subtle, you know, because I think as most people experience that the first six months of COVID were probably the hardest, the most change had occurred, the need to adapt, the loss of jobs, the ability to pay bills, like so many people were displaced from where they previously were in the matter of six months. And, you know, that was true on our end for our clients. I'm sure that was true on the prosecution's end as it related to their victims. And so that's why there was a constant need of checking in on both sides to make sure that all, you know, necessary parties were available to then take on the case. And so, you know, one of the things that I wanted to highlight is that like you were saying, absolutely. One of the things that the court had had in place throughout the state was this extension of speedy trial rights. But in order for the parties essentially to get the benefit of those without having to enter into any kind of time waiver was that they needed to still be ready. And because, for example, in this case, if the people weren't ready, then statutorily they only have 10 days to trail in order to get all of their evidence and all of their witnesses ready. 
But here in late 2020, both parties made the representation that they were ready to proceed to jury trial. Is that right? Yeah, we we all got together and told the judge, you know, hey, we're ready to go. Um, Find us the courtroom and we'll do it. You know, in September at that point, I don't think that there had been a trial in our jurisdiction at all since the court shut down in March of 2020. And it was now September. And I think we were gunning to be the first, you know, just asking for a place to do it. We made a lot of suggestions about where we could, but but none of them were accepted or found to be acceptable. Okay. So good cause was ultimately found because modifications hadn't been made in order to allow for any kind of trials to to officially start going. And so why don't you then take us in to the next court date that came and what took place at that hearing? So the next scheduled court appearance, you know, I said February before, but I think we actually had one of these hearings in January also where um, it was kind of performative. We all showed up and said we were ready and the court set the trial for February. And that's because we experienced something else during this time, which was that we were being promised every time that we showed up for these type of hearings that it was just going to be a couple more months before we were all going to be able to go back in some capacity. And so we would show up and, and this promise would be made and we'd all go, okay, this is it. You know, we'd, we'd write our boss and say, the judge told me that this is it. We're really going to start a trial. And so it was always like hope springs eternal. We always thought it was true. Um, and so we did one of these in January. The trial was set for February. Um, and Leading up to the trial in February, my client and I started having conversations about, again, about his rights um, and what we could do to kind of make this move along. My client essentially told me, you know, I don't think you're doing your job anymore because I know I have these constitutional rights. And and the fact that you're telling me that there's nothing you can do, I don't think is true. I, I want you to do more. Um, and that really lit a fire under me to start reaching out to people who I trust. Uh, people who've been doing this job a lot longer than me and say, hey, like, what do I do for this man? And I, I felt like everyone was telling you, you just can't do anything. There's nothing you can do. And interestingly, the one person who did provide me with something that I could do uh, that might actually work was my client. He called me just one day before our scheduled hearing in February, you know, late at night to tell me that he'd been reading about it himself and he'd been thinking a lot about his options. Um, and he had decided that it was in his best interest to let the court know that he did not want to have a jury trial. He wanted to have what's called a bench trial, which means that he gives up his constitutional right to have 12 jurors decide the case. And he leaves his his fate, really, in the hands of just a judge who hears the evidence um, and does a trial just like every other one that the listeners have heard about. Um, there's just no jury to do it with. And I thought that's very scary. This is um, a very serious case. I had a lot of faith in, in my ability to argue the case and to prove the points, but there's a fear that gets instilled in you when you're told that you don't have to convince 12 people. You have to convince a judge, um, a judge who, frankly, in most jurisdictions, probably used to be a prosecutor. Um, and I, I was afraid. I told my client, I don't, I don't know if I agree with you. I agree with you as far as strategy is concerned, that this might be a way for us to get it done. Um, but practically, I don't know if you're going to get the result you're hoping for putting putting this in the hands of just a judge. And he told me that he would think about it overnight and let me know 
in the morning. That's such a ballsy move from the a client who is facing a life top case that if convicted could potentially spend the rest of his life in prison cuz you're right that changes so many different aspects and dynamics about a case and about the trial. You know, you highlighted one how it goes from, you know, having a panel of 12 to make the considerations to one, but then it's also None of the 12 or most likely none of the 12 have any kind of legal training or experience compared to now the sole person is like one of at the epitome of like legal knowledge and experience and is in a position to even, you know, create case law. And, you know, all judges have that ability to also, you know, the members of the jury who even when they're instructed to not necessarily let their sympathy or their biases or just their you know true selves play a role in the jury process like you now have a trained judge who is you know as you said definitely has prior legal experience in one way or the other really kind of being able to set emotion aside and just focus on the law and the facts and and the legal basis of things and so generally you know that's to a detriment to our client and so hearing that yeah it totally I could imagine being surprised, um, but at the same time, he he's absolutely right in how everything that was going on in the world really specifically only addressed jury trials and how there wasn't any kind of legal authority out there that stripped him of his right to, to do a bench trial. Yeah. And so I, you know, as soon as we had that conversation, I hung up the phone with him and started calling my coworkers that I knew would answer the phone at 8 p.m. to tell me what they thought, you know, is this a good idea? And I got a resounding no from everyone that I asked. This probably isn't your best bet. It's probably not going to go the way you want. But if that's what the client wants, then that's what you have to do. And so I started preparing overnight to kind of see if I could get all of my bearings on what that even meant. So that when I showed up the next morning, if my client told me that's what we wanted to do, that I was ready to do it. And um, I went to bed that night very worried. And I woke up the next morning. I was actually walking into Starbucks when my phone rang. And it was my client. And I thought, this is it. He's going to give me the answer. It's 7.50 in the morning. Court's at 8.30. I answered the phone. I said, hey, how's it going? He said, you know what? It's great. And I want a bench trial. And I said, okay, that's what you want to do then that's time I'm going to let the judge know, just make sure you're logged into this video court hearing at 8.30 so I, we can tell the judge together that that's our plan. And I, I drove to work as fast as I could. <laughs> Jeez. Okay. So at this point, you know, we're over a year from the incident date. Client has never once entered into a time waiver at all times, has demanded his right to move forward on his speedy right trials and the time has come again here he is before the court he's out of custody and he's entering up for a jury trial call but now he wants to waive his right to a jury trial and move forward with a bench trial walk us through what happened yeah so we logged in the judge said you know this case is here for trial call i'm sure he was feeling the same way that the prosecutor was and the way i would have been if my client hadn't given me this nugget 30 minutes before court that this was just going to be both of us saying we we're ready in the court continuing the case. And I said, no, your honor, he, he wants to do a bunch trial. And the court says, Oh, um, like, are you sure? 
And my client's there. He says, yeah, I'm sure. And the court says, well, I'm going to need to take a recess because I don't know what to do here. Um, so the court takes a recess. They, they make a phone call to the presiding judge. And my client takes a recess. He calls me uh, just to ask one more time if I, if I think this is a good idea, which I've never told him it was. So. so we go back in front of the judge and judge says, you know, I talked to the presiding judge. He says he has a courtroom for us to do a bench trial and I'm going to assign it, sign your case to that courtroom. And, you know, I was nervous, but I, I thought great mission accomplished. We did it. We're going to finally have this case heard. Um, my client's finally going to get to have his trial that he's been asking me for for at that point, 14 months. And, and the prosecutor said, you know, Your Honor, we would just like a few days to kind of coordinate everything. We were not expecting this request, which is true because my client didn't tell me until the morning of court. And so they were surprised and they asked for a little bit of time. And the judge said, yeah, well, I'll give you time, but I just want to let you know now I'm assigning the trial to this department. You guys should all be there on uh, Tuesday morning. And Tuesday morning happened to also be my birthday. So I thought, great, like luck's on my side. And they, they told us be there Tuesday and that was it. I prepped over the weekend. I got a call from a client saying that he was pretty sure that the police were out there trying to, you know, do the rounds to see if they could find the listed victim in the case um, because they had been knocking on doors, including his to see if she was there. So I thought, well, the prosecutor must be ready to go too, because they're, they're laying the groundwork to put on this trial. And, and we showed up. Um, on that Tuesday morning, and that's kind of when things went south. Well, depending on, I guess, <laughs> how you look at the situation. Yeah, so, okay, so client has finally got his his desire. He wanted to go to trial. He wanted to basically see if the people were going to be able to produce this victim so that, you know, her credibility could be questioned because from his point of view that that seemed to be the crux of the case and and without her and without that there was none and you know between the two of you you were able to find a, the legal I guess loophole so to speak and what allowed an out-of-custody person to exercise their speedy trial rights and so that sounds just like some fantastic lawyering and quite frankly, from a source that you, I think, maybe would have least expected it from. And so it's crazy how, how that works out that way. But, you know, we're here. We're, we've been assigned to a trial department. We're answering up for trial. You know, walk us through what happens now, essentially, on the first day of trial. Yeah, so I guess I should say that at 3.30 p.m. the night before, so Monday night, I I got an email from the prosecutor that said, hey, I just wanted to let you know, give you a little heads up. Um, we looked into it and we decided that we're not going to waive our right to a trial. And I guess now would be as good a time as any to note that pursuant to the California Constitution, um, it's not just a defendant that has a constitutional right to a trial by 12 people. The prosecution also has that same right. And so the only way that you can have a bench trial is if both of the parties agree, which in my like opinion basically makes it a zero sum game because if either side thinks that their case is so good that a bench trial is the way to go, the other side is probably never going to say yes. Um, so I was surprised by that. I wrote my colleagues and said, do you think he can do this? And they said, oh yeah, it's part of the constitution. And I thought, 
I guess I better I better hop on Lexus and do some legal research about this, find out what's going on. So I did. I spent my whole night uh, researching and I found some case law that I thought was pretty good for me on the issue. Um, and so I showed up Tuesday morning, you know, ready to cite it. I sat down. My client sat down. I should say at this point that when we waived a uh, jury, my client also on the record had waived his constitutional right to have the prosecutor present. So the prosecutor was planning to do this whole trial through video conference. And he'd also waived his right to have the witnesses present. So the only people who were there in the courtroom were me and my client and the judge. Everyone else was planning to appear virtually. And, you know, uh, I saw the presiding judge on my way into court and he said, oh, you know, uh, Dom, are you ready for trial? And I said, I guess so. I don't know what's going to happen. And he said, oh, I thought everything was squared away. And I said, me too, but I'm not sure. And I went upstairs and I guess he'd caught the judge who was doing the trial in the hallway somewhere because she came in and sat down and said, I heard there might be an issue. I thought we were about to start trial. And the prosecutor said, oh, yes, Your Honor, I think there is an issue. We're, we've looked at um, the facts of the case, the potential exposure and other information that we have and decided that it's, it's a trial that we want to do in front of a jury. So we're not waiving our right to a bench trial. Um, and the judge said, Dom, what do you what do you think about that? Because because the prosecutor is right. We do have uh, this right to a trial. Both sides have it. And so you need to you need to tell me if you have anything to say about that. And I thought this is it. I found that case it's really good for me. I said, you know what, Your Honor, I do. I do. I think I have authority that says that we should move forward today. And on top of that, I think that the prosecutor coming in now and making this argument is is a little, it's not really the fairest thing to come in and say that they looked at the case and decided it needed a jury because the case has been the same the whole time. And last week when we were all sitting in court, they didn't say a thing. And the judge looked at the case that I had found, which, which basically said, if someone asks for a bench trial and you don't object, then that's it. The only person that they have to be sure really, really means it is the defendant. And the court had taken so much time with my client to basically threaten him and tell him that this was a bad idea, that there was there was no way that it was going to be argued that he hadn't waived it. He did. And I, I told the court, you know, my client took the time to find out if this is what he really wanted to do. And the court took the time, you know, they stopped court to make this phone call to find out. The prosecutor didn't do anything except say they needed a couple days. And and the case says, in my opinion, that that means that they acquiesced and it's time to start trial. And the judge read the case and she agreed with me. She said, I, I think this is the first day of trial. I think that you gave up your right to have a jury trial when you didn't say anything last week. Um, and that's kind of where things blew up. Man, I was reading. I was reading through this transcript, and and I'm. I'll drop the Evans case in in the show notes for anyone who's interested in checking that out. I know I did, but that was. I, I you're right. Like that was such a persuasive and almost. And I guess you'll be able to explain whether or not it was ultimately binding, but you know, such a an amazing move on your part to be able to find that that case law that suggests it because, you know, I think a lot of times, at least on our end, we're always warned about, you know, when in doubt object, because if you don't object, you know, you potentially are waiving multiple rights. And so 
even if you think it might be legally fine, even if it's on, if it's just questionable, you know, one of the things we're always taught is just to object so that you can preserve it for a later date. And that's exactly what this case said, that, you know, the waiver of the client for the jury has to be, you know, very, very explicit and detailed, which you, you know, just said that that's what happened. But as far as all the other parties, you know, it, it didn't go into detail. And so kind of that rule of thumb that if you don't object, you waive it takes place. And so I, you know, I know in the transcript, the the judge who was sitting on this trial found that case to be very, very persuasive in, in ultimately her ruling. And so why don't you tell us a little bit of what was some of the things said on the record that, you know, try to now overcome this hurdle that it looks like the prosecution is facing now because trial has started and, you know, you have this favorable case law. Yeah. So um, I'll just reiterate what you said, which is that when I found this case, I was like, these facts are perfect. They're like the same as mine. So I was so excited to have it. And the judge made this ruling, which I expected that really any judge that they could have put me in front of would because the case was just so clear. And when the judge made that finding, I kind of encouraged, I think, the court to inquire with the prosecutor, are you ready? Now that I've made this decision that you did, we're about to start this trial. Are you ready to go? Is the listed victim here? And the court, you know, turns to the prosecutor and says, well, is she? And the prosecutor says, no, she's, she's not here. We haven't been able to find her before COVID. And we haven't been able to find her since COVID, which based, like, I'm not great at math, but that equals we've never been able to find her. They don't know where she is, which I knew was true because I couldn't either. And I felt like I needed her to be there more than the prosecutor does. And so I, I had felt like I had probably made better efforts than they had to find her and I couldn't do it. And I thought if I can't, they probably can't. And the judge said, well, what are you going to do with when she's not here? Because it sounds to me like she's the only person who can really help you prove any of this up. And the prosecutor said, well, we, we really need more time. You know, it wasn't fair. I think it was claimed more than one time during these arguments that the fact that I had showed up that morning and said that I wanted the bench trial, that it was an unfair surprise by the defense, uh, which it was one of those things. It was a surprise. But as all the listeners have heard, it, it was surprising for me, too. I didn't hold back. I didn't wait to tell the prosecutor. Now, strategically, it may have been smart if I'd known it for a long time to not tell him. But I didn't have the benefit of strategy here. I was just as surprised as he was. And the court kind of leaned into him, I think, and just said, you know, you've never been able to find her. Um, it's time to fish or cut bait. I think that's a quote that she used a few times during the conversation that she had with all of us. Yes, there was a pandemic. Yes, there have been intervening circumstances. But we're all sitting here today after you showed up last week and said you were ready. And so unless you have something to say, I'm just not really sure why I shouldn't dismiss this case at this point. And, you know, those are those words that make the prosecutor, in most cases, go from zero to 100, which I think is exactly what happened here. The prosecutor said, no, based on these extension orders, I have a right to have this hearing later. I have a right to have it in April, which it was February at the time that we were making these arguments. So they were arguing to the judge basically that they had a right to have 45 more days to try to get this trial off the ground. I want to interrupt you right there though, too, because 
I think that was a really good point to highlight that there was at this time there are still the extensions going on, which you know had given them extra days. And you know when I was going through this transcript, I thought, I you know, I, I don't know how you felt emotionally, but I could only imagine the type of roller coaster that was going on in, in your in your brain because ultimately, you know, there's are three different changes in the rulings that ultimately we're going to get into that all deal with like date-based kind of reasoning. Yeah. So it was definitely for me, like, um, because I was, I was there in person, I felt like I had an advantage that the prosecutor didn't have because the court could see like physically how I was being impacted by kind of everything that they were doing. And the prosecutor didn't have that benefit because they were just like a fate, a talking head basically. And so the court, you know, throughout the transcript, I think you can see leans towards me, then leans towards the prosecutor. Um, and it was really hard for me to stay calm because I, I also could tell, um, because you get that little alert in a video conference when people are watching, that as this hearing was kind of blowing up, more and more people, people who are way more important than me at this job, started logging into the hearing. Um, people who I admire, people who I want to tell my boss that I did a great job. And I could just see all of that happening. And I was just thinking, this better go my way because there's people in here watching now that they're going to remember if it doesn't. Um, and so I was, it was stressful. I think you can actually see right at the beginning of the transcript, the court tells everybody to sit down. And I actually told the judge, I can't, I can't sit down right now. I have to keep standing because I was just so nervous. And I think I agree with you. I think being there, it sounded, you know, I could imagine how that was an additional level of, of persuasion and, and just obviously shows the eagerness of one, your client who was continuously demanding the speedy trial and two, being ready and available to fulfill that client's desire and need. And so I know that they were pushing to that, you know, ultimately they were trying to kind of backpedal it to the jury trial and and reset it for for a later date in a couple of months. But that ultimately was denied by the judge. And then they kind of refocused back to at least their statutory right uh, to trail for a few days. Why don't you walk us through how that kind of argument went? Yeah, so the court tells the prosecutor, um, I am not going to continue this as long as you're asking me to. You do have a statutory right, which we talked about earlier, which is to trail through 10 days. And so I'll give you the rest of those 10 days. And I think the prosecutor thought that meant that they had 10 days, but I had already done all this math and we had passed through most of them. It was, I think, Tuesday at this point. And I said, Your Honor, if you're going to go with that, then I think the latest that this can be set for is Friday of this week, which is just four or five days later. And the judge said, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you until the 10th day to see if you can piece this together. I've already found that you'll be doing this trial with no jury. Um, and so piece it together by Friday or that's it. And the prosecutor made what, in my opinion, was a very big mistake, which is that they responded to that by saying that they didn't think that they were going to be able to subpoena the police officers who investigated this case before Friday. And I think that that got judges, you know, spidey senses going that that meant that the prosecutor had shown up 
with no witnesses ready to start the trial. And she asked him very directly. She said, wait a minute, you don't even have police officers here? And he started trying to explain why he didn't have any police officers. He said, you know, we have to give them five days of notice, five business days of notice. And it hasn't even been five days since we showed up and we asked for this bench trial, Um, which I'll just say now for the benefit of everyone is true. If you want to subpoena a law enforcement officer by just faxing them the subpoena, you do have to give them five business days of notice. But You can also subpoena a law enforcement officer the same way you do anyone else, which is that I could give you a subpoena 30 minutes before court and you would have to show up on it. So the court heard that and and they just said, I can't believe that you're here and you don't even have your police officer witnesses ready to go. And that was really where she kind of shook things up. She had heard enough. Well, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, I think at one point in the transcript, there's a a quote from the judge that talks about how... You, you know, she basically, she says that I, I've been bending backwards for you. You know, I I was very close to actually resetting this date to April, given the extensions, but, you know, was persuaded not to because, yeah, this and found that this is going to be a bench trial, which isn't covered by the extensions to then, okay, well, maybe if we don't start today, I'll still give you the extra days to be able to do things to, yeah, you know, she was she was not happy that, you know, when she was like, again, I'm going to even give you even extra days uh, that they didn't think that they would ultimately be able to be ready and that they technically showed up to a trial day, day one of trial without ready, being ready to go. Yeah. And I think that was where she really put her foot down. And I mean, the transcript is a little different than what I remember in my head. So I'll just tell you what I remember in my head. And then if you want to fill in any gaps, you can. But I just remember that she was holding the court file open. She'd been looking at it a lot as we went through. And as soon as she realized that the police officers weren't there, she slammed the file closed. She said, that's it. Dismissed. And to my recollection, she actually said, dismiss, dismiss, dismiss. She said it several times in a row. That's right. That's right. And then she she held her fingers out and she listed out the reasons that she was dismissing the case, which was uh, speedy trial violation, lack of prosecution, unavailability of witnesses. And then I think she kind of trailed off as she was thinking of maybe more reasons that she was going to do it. And all I was thinking while she was making this list is, this is great. There's no way the prosecutor's ever going to be able to appeal this because she just listed so many legal reasons that she was absolutely done with this case. Um, and she, you know, turned to my client and said, this is, you know, this isn't, doesn't mean that this is over for you. Like things could still happen with this case. Um, and I just sat there kind of quietly and thought, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if anything else can happen. So the way that she made that finding was so, she just listed so many reasons that she was dismissing it. I thought at least one of these is probably it for this case. Well, I had the pleasure of being in the in the gal- virtual gallery that day and know and, and think it's fair to say that I think everybody was so surprised when she ultimately said those magical words of dismiss, but absolutely knew how deserving it was uh, just based on the legal arguments that we heard. And I think one of the, one of her final basis was ultimately just in the interest of justice uh, because, you know, like we've talked about this whole time, 
Klein never introduced a time waiver. He always wanted to exercise his constitutional right to do a speedy trial. And you were able to navigate through some of the most unprecedented times, one of the world pandemics that, you know, there's only been a couple of, to be able to get one of the most just and fair verdicts or results in a case. And so, Dom, that's just absolutely amazing story. That level of lawyering, I think, should be highlighted and known because, you know, we're, we're able to do that every single day and we do. That's why we do what we do. And so thank you so much for sharing that story. You know, this episode in its whole self has been a great example as to why we fight and we fight and we fight and we take matters to the box. But for our members of the jury, why don't you go ahead and close us off with, you know, what is the importance of taking it to the box mean to you? Thanks, Lucas. So I've thought about this a little bit, and I think that um, the, the best thing that I can say now is that I come from what I would call a long line of public servants. My dad was in the military. Most of my family is, is law enforcement officers, um, and the members of my family who aren't law enforcement officers are um, educators. So pretty much everyone I've ever been surrounded with in my life has been a public servant of some kind. And I think that I found a way to perfectly uh, kind of weave together the two backgrounds I've described, right, the law enforcement aspect and the education aspect to do this job where I get to meet members of the jury all the time. I get to learn about their backgrounds and experiences. And that's why taking it to the box is so important. It's because once you know that about those people, and you know their backgrounds and their experiences, you know how they're going to treat your client. And taking it to the box means that you get to pick people who are going to care for your client and are going to care for the law and are going to reach the right result. And taking it to the box means trusting your community um, and also like loving the civic responsibility that's involved. involved. Nothing makes me happier than the part of a trial, you know, that a lot of people find cheesy, which is where they do all of this in the presence of the flag of our country stuff. And it makes my eyes water. I've sat in more than one trial and I'm sure watch jurors think what's wrong with her because I'm just so happy to be there. And it's because that's what this country was founded on. And there's a lot of people that say a lot of things about what makes this country great, but this is absolutely it. And there's a reason that over half the bill of rights is dedicated to the jury trial. It's because it's the most important part of our society. Well, members of the jury, that's our show, and I rest my case. Be sure to come back next episode as we take another matter to the box. If you're a fan of the show, go ahead and subscribe. You can also find us on social media at members of the jury. If you want to be a guest or have any feedback, be sure to email. information in this podcast is provided as general reference work as a public service. The audience is advised to check for changes to current laws and to consult with a qualified attorney on any legal issue. The use of this material does not create an attorney-client privilege in any fashion with the podcast, the host, or the guest. This information is for educational purposes only, and no one affiliated with the podcast may be held liable for any decision made based on this information.